6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Software has no mass. A light switch, if it's at a 1 or a 0, doesn't weigh any different. Software has no mass. In fact, I can send software through the airwaves. Do it all the time. Software has no mass. See, the real you is software, not hardware. The real you has no mass because it's software. You're in a temporary hardware environment right now with bones and flesh and all that, but that's uh, consumable. Thanks to uh, Michael Crichton's uh, novel, The Jurassic Park, we discover that you can, you can create an entire creature by just having a code. It's called DNA, right? There's ways to transmit it. The elements that you're made of are fungible. Carbon atoms, hydrogen. You can get those anywhere. The trick is to put them together in the right way. All God needs to do to resurrect you is to have your DNA. And maybe a little bit more, but it's information, okay? But you have no mass. Now, that means something. In, and um, that means you are not restricted to a time dimension. You are eternal whether you are saved or not. That's the staggering discovery of what I'm pointing out to you. Okay? You are eternal whether you're saved or not. The question is, where are you going to spend it? And if you're perfect without blemish, you can spend it with God. Whoops. Walter Martin used to say there's two paths to heaven. You know, uh, one path is to never make a mistake from the time you're born be absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless, and then when you die, you just go right up to heaven and say to God, move over, it's to us. And he's being, of course, irreverent, but he makes the point. The other way, of course, is by God having taken care of the issue with our redemption. So it's interesting, see, uh, we're, if we're in a timeline, and behind, there's uh, them behind us, and there's us, and uh, there was a guy that got out of time and came into the time domain and paid the price for all of us. And uh, that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, what happened at the cross. Paid for it. Done. All your sins were yet future back then. He paid for them all. Outside time. Now, let's go back to psychology a little bit. The problem with Adam and Eve is that they came from a dysfunctional family? <laughs> I don't think so. Was that Satan's problem also? Did he come from a dysfunctional family? Isn't it tragic that Paul did not have the insights of modern psychology when he counseled Timothy? When you read the Timothy letters. And the other question is, if you're filled full, as the Scripture says, why doesn't it show? Ooh. Holy Spirit dwells in you? How, why can't we tell? There's something throttling that, isn't there? If you have the love of God within us, why do we behave the way we do? Because we make faith choices. We fail to make faith choices. And this is the miracle of my wife's book, The Way of Agape, because it deals with this issue in practical terms that's changed lives throughout the world. And so I invite you to take a look at that. But let's get back to our text. I've gotten a little 
sidetrack here. Colossians verse 11, 2 verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's using the term because he's refuting the, the Jewish use of that term, the word circumcision. Circumcision made without hands. It's interesting, God never separates the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Circumcision in the past, in Genesis 17 elsewhere, was a sign of the covenant, is what that was. It was a physical emblem with a spiritual significance. And as, as so often happens, the physical sign tends to replace the actuality. It was a covenant sign back in Genesis 17 and following. But it's become a different kind of idiom here in the days of the Colossians. And we're going to deal with that as we get into the Kabbalah and all of that. And so God warned them about this all the way through the, the Torah, Deuteronomy 10, 30, Jeremiah 4, elsewhere. And people, even non-Jewish people, make the same mistake today when they rely on any ritual to save them. And baptism doesn't save you. That doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile testimony and witness, but don't get confused about that. You don't wash away your sins with baptismal water. Christ's blood washes away the sin. And it's tragic that many well-intended people make that mistake. There is a contrast between Jewish circumcision and the believer's spiritual circumcision uh, in Christ, in the Jews and believers. In the Jews, it's external surgery, obviously. In believers, it's internal. It's a circumcision of the heart, is what both Jeremiah as well as New Testament terms. In Jews, it's only part of the body, obviously. In believers, it's the whole body of our sins that's at issue here. In Jews, it's done by hands. Believers, it's done without hands. That's exactly the term that Paul is using here in Colossians. In, among the Jews, no spiritual help in conquering sin. You don't conquer sin because you happen to be born in a Jewish hospital. Okay? And uh, so, and of course, in believers, the circumcision Paul's talking about enables them to overcome sin because you have the Holy Spirit to draw upon. When Jesus died and rose again, he won a complete and final victory over sin. That's why I prefer the empty tomb as an image of our faith than I do the crucifixion on a cross because that didn't finish, that, that won the victory. But we celebrate a risen Lord, not a crucified Lord. And uh, so. What the law could not do, Jesus Christ accomplished for us. The old nature, the body of the sins in the flesh, to use his term, was put off, rendered inoperative, so that we need no longer be enslaved to its desires. That's astonishing, but clearly true and demonstrable. The old sinful nature is not eradicated, for we can still sin. The guy isn't a horse thief because he stole a horse. He stole the horse because he's a horse thief, right? No, we still can sin. But its power has been broken as we yield to Christ and walk in the power of the Spirit. And that's the challenge of the Christian walk, is to learn to make faith choices. Not how you feel, but what the... And then, discover, and then to discover that God will realign your feelings to that choice. But it won't be instantaneous. You make the faith decision, the choice, and God will align things properly. But you make the choice according to His Word, according to the Spirit. And... Uh, so, he could, so Paul continues here, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So obviously in the baptism, you're reenacting that commitment. 
It's it's an important testimony. I'm not trying to minimize it, but don't get confused on the theology. A lot of people uh, have some very uh, strange extrapolations from that. You're buried with them in baptism. That's why we're talking. We're not talking sprinkling here. We're talking immersion, right? Only it's only Paul that emphasizes the death of Christ in his definition of the gospel. That he died according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And he, the burial, he put because he builds his whole perception of the baptism up about that. And he treats that as an essential part of the gospel. When a person is saved, he is immediately baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Immediately. I'm not talking about the infilling. I'm not talking about a number of other issues that are valid areas. Whatever happened to Christ is imputed to us through the faith of the operation of God. That's what he's saying here. Okay. Baptism. The word baptize has both a literal and a figurative meaning. The literal meaning is to dip in, to immerse, obviously. The figurative meaning is to be identified with. And uh, for example, the Jewish nation was baptized unto Moses when it went through the Red Sea. It was an identity thing. There was no water involved in this baptism. They went through on dry land. Interesting point, but it's an important point to understand. That was the baptism of the nation. Didn't involve water. They went through on dry land. But it was an identity with Moses and, and all of that. And uh, so, continuing here. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having forgiven. Past tense, by the way. Boy, is that precious. See, what else do you need? What did you contribute to that process? You and I are helpless. Why? Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. We can't contribute to this process. He's done it all. The flesh profiteth nothing, John reminds us, or Jesus reminds us in, in John 6. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be in Romans 8, and on it goes. The law was certainly against us because it was impossible for us to meet its holy demands. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is essential background for all of this. Even though God never gave the Ten Commandments to the Gentiles, the righteous demands of the law, God's holy standards, were written in their hearts, according to Romans 2. How could the holy God be just in canceling a debt? That's Socrates' famous conundrum here. Pondering the unsolvable problems relating to future rewards and punishments, Socrates said to Plato, It may be, Plato, that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. He could not in his imagination you know, uh, recognize the redemption plan of God, which of course comes five centuries later, but still. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, forgiven, uh, having forgiven you all trespasses. Therefore God is making no attempt to improve it. There is no place for merit as far as man is concerned. All merit is another's, with a capital A, namely Jesus Christ. Hath, not will, that's a present possession. Wow, hath he quickened together with him. That's an existing, there's lots of verses to nail that one. But here's one of my favorite verses. Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Very colorful, what on earth is he talking about? 
Need a little background for this one, okay? The handwriting of the ordinances. What that, another way to talk about that, the handwriting of ordinance that was against us is an elaborate phrase which we can summarize more crisply by calling it our certificate of debt. We have this concept even in today's society that when you break a law, you owe a debt to society. The concept of a failure of, of a moral kind involves you incurring a debt to society is the, is the, is the rhetoric here, okay? Well, the word here is chirographon, which is a note of one's own hand or writing in which one acknowledges that the money has either been deposited with him or lent to him by another to be returned at the appointed time. In other words, it's an acknowledgement of debt. That's a term, meaning a, the, the, the handwriting of the ordinances is, is an acknowledgement of debt. I'll call it the certificate of debt, okay? Now, what's going on here? And this is hupanantios, which is contrary to... Uh, opposed to our adversary. This is the debt against us, in other words. Okay. All right. Now, you need to understand the, the Greco-Roman period of this epistle. The legal practice in those days, they literally, when you were convicted of a crime before a court, they literally drafted a certificate of debt. Your debt to society. And that would result uh, from a sentence being passed against the accused. When the sentence was passed, a certificate of debt was formulated, and this debt was paid as one served his sentence. Okay? So when you were jailed, your jailer kept that certificate. You're in a five-year sentence. In there one year, he'd cross it off. Second year, cross it off. Third year, cross it off. Let's assume you escaped. Guess who paid the last two years that's missing? The jailer. That's why... When the jailer found out that some angel had opened all the cells, he was ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. We're still here. We're singing hymns. He, becomes, he, he gets saved. Couldn't believe it. But he, 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 if, if they all escaped, he'd been had. Get the picture, okay? Now, see, in the event of escape, the jailer considered, was considered liable for any unpaid remainder. That was the, the legal concept that the rhetoric is coming from. And uh, we're going to talk about it being wiped off, wipe away, obliterate, erase, wipe out, blot out, and so forth. And when the sentence was completed, you paid your whole thing, the jailer would endorse the certificate as paid in full. Okay? Now, so the word in the Greek is tetelestai. Teleo, which means to finish, complete, to end, to fulfill or carry out, to accomplish, come to an end, be over. And so forth, and, and so on. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, when Christ, the last thing he says on the cross, it is finished. That's the way it's in your King James Bible. Have no idea what the New King James does, but it's probably somewhere. In the Greek term in the text is to telestai. It is finished or paid in full. So, see, that's, that was Christ's last word to mankind. The last thing he said to mankind. And you being dead in your sins, let's go over this again, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Handwriting the ordinances. Our certificate of debt. 
paid in full. Paid in full. Tetelestai. Paid in full. No double jeopardy here. So that, was, that was their approach to double jeopardy. You had, when you served your sentence, you had the signed thing. They could never try you again for that crime. That was their approach to the issue of double jeopardy. But God paid sin's debt when he gave his son on the cross. And he upheld the holiness of his own law. You know, it staggers me to think about the father. Now, you guys who are fathers are the only ones who are going to really understand what I'm about to say. But for the Father to love us so much that He would let His Son, He would allow the mob is to spit on Him, to insult Him, plate those crown of thorns, to beat Him so badly He didn't look human anymore, according to Isaiah. Ripping off his beard, among other things. For the father to stand back and allow that to happen. Did he love his son? Boy, more than we can imagine. But he loved you more. We always think of the sacrifice of Christ. Indeed, I don't want to minimize that. But think about the father. He was a participant in a very unusual way, very difficult way, very painful way. But Jesus Christ did even more than cancel the debt. Here's the point. He took the law that condemned us and set it aside so that we are no longer under its dominion. That's staggering. That's staggering. We are delivered from the law, Romans 7. We are not under the law. We're under grace indeed. When you talk about this debt being paid, I have to, I can't resist including Pilate's comment about all this. Pilate's epitaph that he himself personally put on the cross. Very interesting. Pilate's official label, a titlon that's called, is the official announcement from the official representative of the ruler of the world. He made his statement there. It was written in Hebrew, and the first letter of each of the four words spelled out the tetragrammaton. I want to show you how that works. Here's what the John 19, verse 19, 20 records. Pilate wrote the titlon, or the title, put it on the cross. Pilate wrote it himself, by the way. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nine in the city. And it was written, get this, it was written in Hebrew, in Greek and Latin. Hebrew because he was that was his jurisdiction. Greek because that was the international language. Latin was just starting, but it was becoming the official language of the empire. All three were there. So this is what it looked like. That's what he wrote. Obviously, right to all, all, as you know, all languages flow towards Jerusalem. All nations east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Not just Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic and Sanskrit, you name it. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Uh, Latin, Greek, uh, Cyrillic, you name it. Okay, but this is anyway is what he put on the, on the epitaph. And that's Yeshua, Hanatzerai, Vimelech, HaYehudin. Four words in the Hebrew. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, it's interesting 
When you and I miss something, or are likely to miss something, the Pharisees come to our rescue. Every time they get upset, you want to figure out why. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Why would they care? It sounds like they're quibbling over a small point. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Sort of takes you a Brenner to deliver that line, I think. What he actually says, what I have written will always remain written, is what he actually says. Now, what are they upset about? Pilate has gotten their goat somehow. How has he done that? Because he knows that Jews are really into acrostics. They're really into, you know, there are Psalms that are acrostics. There are all kinds of, all through the Bible, there are acrostics. Take the first, of those, first letter of those four words, and it is yod Hey vav Hey. The unpronounceable name of God. Now, does this mean that Pilate recognized you as the Son of God? Not necessarily. He may have just done this because he knew it would get their goat. He knew it would really upset them. And he was frustrated that they put him into this untenable position with their shenanigans. So this was his last little dagger. He did this to get them really upset. But he's labeling him. The, the personal representative of the ruler of the world is... Uh, acknowledging his deity here, whether, uh, we, it, it, although inver possibly inadvertently. So that's why our symbol of Christ is the resurrection symbol. He's a living Lord, and so forth. And we continue, and having spoiled principalities and powers, those are the terms of the angels that the Gnostics try, think are so important, he spoiled them. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. See, Paul is driving uh, these arguments in, into the uh, into the wrists of the Gnostics. Jesus not only dealt with the sin and the law on the cross, he also dealt with Satan. Wow. Okay. Speaking about his crucifixion, Jesus says, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out." That's Christ's assessment. That's not some theologian speculation. Three great victories on the cross. He spoiled the principalities and powers. Stripping Satan and his army of whatever weapons they used. Satan cannot harm the believer who will not harm himself. It is when we cease to watch and pray, as Peter did, that Satan can cause his weapons against us. The second victory is he made a show of them openly. He exposed Satan's deceit and vileness. In his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ vindicated God and vanquished the devil. Manifestly. And his third victory is found in the word triumph. Whenever a Roman general won a great victory on foreign soil, he took many captives and as much loot and gained new territory for Rome. He was honored by an official parade known as the Roman Triumph, right? Paul alluded to this practice in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Jesus Christ won a complete victory and he returned to glory in a great triumphal procession. And in this, he disgraced and defeated Satan. So, you and I can share, do share, in fact, uh, in his victory over, this, over Satan. We don't have to worry about the elemental forces that govern the planets and try to influence men's lives. The satanic armies of principalities and powers were defeated and disgraced. As we claim the victory in Christ, we use the equipment he has provided us. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, or 18, uh, is the armor of God. We trust him, and we are free from the influence of the devil. 
There's a fourfold identification with Christ that makes it not only unnecessary, but sinful for us to get involved with any kind of legalism. It's not only ineffectual, it's also um, sinful for us to get legalistic. We're circumcised in Him, we're alive in Him, we're free from the law in Him, we're victorious in Him. There are some caveats I want to throw out here, though, so we don't get carried away here. Where does character and integrity fit in? We're saved by Christ, great. Well, what, wait, 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 wait a minute. What, where does character and integrity fit in? One of the biggest adjustments I've had in my life, going from the corporate boroughs, I was on 12 public boards, I was 30 years in public, uh, I was chairman and CEO of six different public companies, and from that world, coming out of that world into professional Christianity some 20 years ago, the shock I had is the change in morality and ethics. Not talking to theology, I'm talking just ethics, integrity. The boardroom had far more integrity than I have experienced in professional Christianity. That's a scathing indictment. It, was, it took me a long time to, to adjust and realize most of that's lack of training, but still, character integrity seems to be lost in all the theology. Do we need to keep appointments? Absolutely. Should we honor business commitments? Absolutely. There are people that are more rigorous in their commitments in the secular world than I've experienced in the, in the Christian world. What does it mean to be a fiduciary to our brothers and sisters? The word fiduciary is not even in the vocabulary of most Christians. Putting the other, it's, it's the doctor-patient relationship, the attorney-client-patient It's where you put your person's interests ahead of your own, being a fiduciary. If you're a manager or a director of a public company, you're a fiduciary for the collective shareholders, not just your constituent interests. To our employers, if you are not a Christian, you owe your employer 60 minutes for every hour paid. No problem. If you're a Christian, you're not a fiduciary, normally, in America at least, unless you're a manager or a director of the company. Then you're a fiduciary for the company. Unless you're a Christian. Because then you're even an employee as a Christian is a fiduciary of the company. That's what Christ talks about in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, the first few verses and elsewhere. See, we are called to holiness and obedience, nevertheless. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.